Hello everyone, today is August 14th. Nearly 100,000 children have tested positive for the coronavirus in the last few weeks. And if it's Friday, then this is the Delve. Since the beginning of the pandemic, roughly 338,000 children have tested positive for COVID-19. About 100,000 of those children have tested positive in just the last few weeks. These numbers come as schools across the country struggle to decide when and how they should reopen. The Trump administration has not made the decision any easier, and the president has threatened to withhold federal funding to schools that do not reopen this fall for in-person instruction. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued guidelines on how to safely reopen schools, and the administration quickly sidelined this advice. The administration has said, they will not let science stand in the way of reopening schools. Well, you talked about earlier with school districts, but we're seeing more school districts, at least in Virginia, for example, last night, deciding to go online only. What does the president say to parents out there who are now going, okay, what do I do with my kids? Yeah, the president has said um, unmistakably that he wants schools to open, and I was just in the Oval talking to him about that. And when he says open, he means open and full, kids being able to attend each and every day at their school. Uh, the science should not stand in the way of this. The president falsely claimed in an interview on Fox and Friends that children are almost, I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from this disease. This new report of cases clearly states that children are not, in fact, immune to this disease. But what does all this mean for schools? These next two episodes will be a two-part series where I speak with educators and administrators to hear their experience with the pandemic and with the racial justice movement that is gripping the nation. Today in part one, I chat with Eric Brandman, a teacher at LaGuardia High School in New York City. Following him, I speak with Angela Harris, a first grade teacher at the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It is one of the only African-American immersion schools in the country. These are some amazing and deep conversations. Let's have a listen. Hey, Eric, welcome to the Delve. Thank you for taking some time to speak with us today. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, thank you for asking me to be able to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. So quickly, I guess just for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and your school. I'm a teacher here in New York City. This is my 18th year of teaching, 48 years old, white guy, out, queer. I teach at a large public selective performing arts high school that also has a very strong emphasis on the academics. And I teach government, specifically AP U.S. government and AP comparative government and politics. Wow. So this has been a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of a narrative that the pandemic has eased and that things are better and we can start reopening schools. Does that match your experience so far? Yes and no. There are two things, I guess. One of the biggest concerns that I had as a teacher throughout the pandemic in April and May was not ultimately so much about my students having access to learning and technology and them doing assignments, uh, but rather their social and emotional health. Right. I teach seniors. Imagine for a moment being 17 years old and having the second half of your senior year completely ripped from you mm -hmm. and then being isolated 
with your family who you may or may not have a great relationship with, depending on what it means for you to be 17. You know, students were literally grieving from my perspective as a teacher. So to pivot back what you were talking about in terms of, you know, where things are now, infection rates are much lower and social distancing and adherence to wearing masks is happening. But, you know, New York City has or had the numbers have gone down drastically, but our student population is over a million. Right. It's massive. Yeah. Largest school district in the country. There's a great deal of I don't know mm-hmm. that I feel that I hear from other teachers that has actually been said openly by administrators, literally just like we don't know. Because when it comes to reopening or ending remote teaching, I don't feel my students are going to be safe. Personally, I don't feel that I'm going to be safe. When it comes back to reopening, there's going to have to be some deep structural changes. We talked about the need for every bathroom to have soap, potentially having dividers on desks, and now introducing masks and hand sanitizer, all these items. What do you think that will look like, introducing that into school culture? The challenge here is that requires money. If I, as a teacher in a non-pandemic situation, providing tissues to students and Clorox wipes myself, which is what I did before the pandemic happened for years, then suddenly shifting to having hand sanitizer available everywhere. Constantly. Never mind face masks. Like Uh. with close to a million students, what happens when a student doesn't have a face mask? How are those going to be provided? A million students? Like, are we going to recycle them? Right. Are they, that's what I was just about to ask. Are they going to be disposable? Do you recycle them? What does that look like? Yeah, especially when masks are in shortage for frontline yeah. doctors, right? So just the structural part of it in terms of supplies, but there's also a staffing part of it. My classes have always had 34 students, which means I teach approximately 170 students in any given day. That's kind of standard for New York City. Six feet distancing means I can maybe teach 10 to 15 maximum. How do I do that unless I suddenly am cloning myself? I do not have the words to articulate how impossible it really is because it's just not. It's tough. When you hear ultimatums from the president and Secretary DeBose about public schools, across the nation have to reopen or they're going to cut funding. What's your reaction to that? What are your colleagues saying about that? First of all, the ability of the president or the secretary of education to unilaterally suddenly cut off funding is impossible. (laughs) So like government perspective, there's a misunderstanding of how government works because Congress allocates that money anyway. Right. So I've actually just had to explain this to someone the other day. (laughs) Yeah, there are funds that the executive branch has, but it's already been allocated. (laughs) And then the HEROES Act that was proposed and passed in the House of Representatives adds a great deal of money to that. And that money goes directly to states. So states then decide, right, where the money goes. So like my, my initial response is anyone who's assuming that that's going to happen doesn't understand doesn't understand how government works right 
It's kind of funny. <laughs> I feel like you're educating America right now because you're a government teacher. <laughs> so, yeah, I that, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Um, Being a teacher, you have insight to a student's life that no news organization can give. You were able to see the students, you know, when the shutdown was happening. How are how are the students coping with finishing? the school year or perhaps even starting the school year in this pandemic? I can say when it comes to kind of ending a school year and transitioning into college, because I taught 12th grade, I think there's a wide range of experiences that students have had. Living in New York, if I were able to communicate directly to people not in the city about exactly how devastating what has happened is to speak to, you know, where students are and where I've seen my students be. There's a student in our school who lost a parent, like, from morning to night, right? I had students who who were hospitalized in an ICUs. I myself personally, as a teacher, I live in a part of New York City that's close to Times Square, right between two main avenues. And the month of April was nothing but constant sirens. The city was largely silent because people were not outside. There was not traffic, but the sirens were constant, 24 hours a day. Wow. And for people who lived in other neighborhoods of New York City that were really hard hit, like Elmhurst, Queens, that was even closer because the sirens were taking people they knew to the hospital, and those hospitals were overflowing. The number one thing that I, as a teacher, and my colleagues and the school where I teach has been very focused on is the fact that New York City has experienced and students have experienced immense trauma on a level that it is going to take me and them years to actually work through. To do that simultaneously that suddenly a student is pushed back into a learning environment is incredibly difficult. I kind of want to pivot the conversation more into more about what you focus on as a teacher, um, government. Has there ever been a similar period in American history where the government had to shut down schools for a mass amount of time because of of a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, pandemic of 1918, 1919, but I'll be really honest, even when I was teaching... U.S. history, that pandemic gets a paragraph in a history textbook, and that's it. It's only even been recently that people are actually revisiting what happened during that time. Right. I feel, and the way that I kind of would approach teaching it when I taught U.S. history was, okay, so in the 1920s, jazz and flappers and things are changing and prohibition, but parties are happening. Why might people need to do that? Well, because they just had millions of people die. <laughs> you know? Wow. That is so actually, <laughs> that's really, really interesting. That like adds like a different outlook on the roaring twenties. They're just bouncing back from their version of COVID. And a world war. And a world war. Yeah. My mind's blown. 
I wish you could see that. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> it's like the biggest epiphany. <laughs> yeah, but like that, that's like three slides on a PowerPoint and, and maybe a quote, right? This is unprecedented, period. In 2016, I'm actually in the front of the yearbook with a quote. And the quote in front of the yearbook was, none of this is normal, people. Because it's not. None of this is normal. So to say what's going to happen next, I don't know. I, I, you know, I have educated guesses, right? I have like things that I can piece together from experience, but we are in completely uncharted territory when it comes to educational policy, when it comes to supporting students' learning, and when it comes to, if we want to talk government, the relationship between the states and the federal government. From my perspective as a government teacher, it's laid bare some of the real challenges that a federal system like the United States has. There are a lot of benefits to having a federal system where states have more localized control. But this is like laid it bare. And in the inequities that exist based on race and class, like it's, you know, it's all out there at this point. Would it have been better if the federal government had taken a more um, prominent role in battling the pandemic instead of leaving it to the governors and the local municipalities. To kind of bring it back to what I mentioned with the pandemic in 1918, 1919, there have been articles and historians have written recently about, well, you know, what happened then? And one, there were actually anti-mask activists then, uh, the same as now. But two, because of the war effort, there was a consistency of messaging that seemed to happen from the national government. Some historians are saying that there was a different kind of buy-in that happened, to kind of put it that way. Personally, I feel that one of the purposes of good government is to govern effectively. That means that sometimes a government nationally consolidates power, and sometimes it releases power to states. And in a time of crisis, the U.S. government, after the Cold War, has become really centralized in terms of the national government having a lot of power. Um, and there are many, many tools available to the national government that just were not used. There was an act and uh, passed during the Korean War that empowered the president to literally direct production of particular goods during a time of crisis, right? right? Yeah. And President Trump said, I could use this, but I'm not going to. And then he did. Things would have looked possibly very differently if that act had been used to take action with production for anything from ventilators to PPE. Things might have been very different. We're at a pivotal juncture from my perspective, whether it's in education, whether it's in addressing issues of systemic racism, which is intersectional with educational issues, right? There's a turning point that we are in right now that I personally feel we will not know, I will not know the full impact of what is happening right now for a decade or more, because we're in it. What I can say as a teacher 
is that, and this is not because I live in the supposed, you know, liberal enclave of New York City. I have not ever seen a level of engagement, interest, and concern among people who are going to be voting for the first time in my entire life. It's incredible. Yeah. I said this to my seniors this year. I've said it many times prior to even the 2016 election. As a 17 or 18-year-old, you have the ability to create the world you want to live in, right? The current generation is larger if you take into account the, the the next like three or four years or so, larger than the generation of the baby boom. They are the generation that is going to shape what happens for the next two thirds of the 21st century. And they are paying attention. Yep. It's incredible. I saw the stat the other day, 14 million folks have turned 18 since 2016 election. Can you believe that? Yeah. Massive number. I had students who this year were like, I can't come to school today because, or this week I'm volunteering at the polls. I won't be here on Thursday. What am I going to miss? Students, I was on a Zoom call saying goodbye to my seniors. And one of them was like, I've got to go early. I'm really sorry. I'm phone banking for one of the the Democratic challengers for Kentucky, the Senate run, right? Okay. Did you give them extra credit? I think that deserves extra credit. That's incredible. (laughs) Um, It it gets lots of high fives, but (laughs) extra credit means that all students get it equally, right? Uh. So like, you know, um, tons of high fives, lots of praise for me, right? you know? I really trust that they will create a more balanced, equitable America. They listen to each other. They see each other differently mm. than, than people. My, than, I'm Gen X. So, you mm. know, like they, they, there's a, a level of sensitivity and openness that I don't feel my generation had to develop. Mm. I had the privilege to not have to develop it it really is a privilege to be able to kind of block oneself off. And I do not see the students who I've taught who were nine or 10, right. During the financial collapse of 2007, 2008, and who have now come of age during a pandemic, they do not have the luxury. All I can say is like, watch out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But like in the best way. <laughs> in the absolute best way, like students are watching, they are paying attention, and we are being weighed and judged based on our actions. There's lots of criticism that people might have of all the millennial stuff, but I firmly believe that the vast majority of the teenagers who I have taught know the difference between something that's right and something that's wrong. Right. And they fundamentally know that 150,000 people dying is wrong and that police brutality is wrong. And they're going to act on those convictions. Wow. I think that was like, that's like a mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there, is there anything you want to add before, uh, 
before we, we, we wrap this up? The only thing that I would add is something that I actually say to my students repeatedly throughout the year, and that is that voting is not enough. Mm. That there's going to be lots of attention paid to vote. Voting is not enough. Right. Calling your representatives, protesting in the streets and having your voice heard and your face seen, that's what creates change. Voting is a moment, not a movement. And that's really something that I emphasize to them. And like, that needs to be known. I, I don't think a lot of, of people necessarily are thinking about that. I haven't thought about it before, how voting is kind of like a moment, but it is, it's a moment. It's kind of incumbent on all of us to maintain that, that activism, that engagement that we hold our government to the task. Well, everyone, that is Eric Brandman, US government teacher from LaGuardia, right? Yeah, LaGuardia High School's performing arts, music and art and performing arts. Thank you again, Eric, for taking time. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. This was incredible. Yeah, thank you so much for asking me to share my experience and for the questions that you asked. Thank you. You got me to think about some of the things that I need to think about, too. Great. So I appreciate that. And thanks for the mic drops. <laughs> yeah, you use them at will. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Angela, welcome to the Delph. Thank you for taking some time to speak with me. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your school. Yeah, so my name is Angela Harris. I am a first grade teacher at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School, the African-American Immersion School. I have been a teacher there. I'm going into my fourth school year oh, wow. um, Yep, as a teacher, but I've actually been a early childhood educator for 20 years. Yeah, that's my history. My school is an African-American immersion school, like I said. And so I know the question always ends up being, so what is an African-American <laughs> immersion school? All right, so <laughs> tell us. <laughs> so an uh, African-American immersion school simply is a school where uh, Black children's lives, experiences, and cultures are centered. Uh, it's a part of our curriculum. It's a part of our daily practice. It is a part of the language that we use when we are talking um, to our students. Um, so it's really about helping students realize who they are very early on in life and where they came from and what they can accomplish. Wow. So this shutdown and period coupled with the protests from Black Lives Matter, this has been a very interesting experience for you, not only just you, but also your school. Oh, surely. It has been a very unique experience. I think that our school has always had conversations about Black Lives Matter. That's always been kind of central to my, not just my work, but the work of our school in general. So these were not conversations that we were unfamiliar with. Um, I think when the, the protesting began, we were still virtual learning here in Milwaukee. So, you know, my students, a lot of the protests here in Milwaukee were happening on Martin Luther King Boulevard, on Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. And a lot of my students live in the neighborhood in which they go to school. And so they had questions about things that were happening here right away. And so because of the culture of our school, I think it allowed us to begin to have those conversations early on with them. 
and really engage them in, in what this particular time was all about. So I don't think it's ever too early to engage children in conversations about race and issues around race and justice and advocacy and activism. I think that it's extremely important, actually, to begin having those conversations when they're in kindergarten and first grade and really building a foundation to true civic engagement. You know, so like if I'm taking my kindergartners to when we used to have polling places in our building because voting happened during the school day, me taking them down there and engaging them in that experience in K-5 sets the foundation, hopefully, for a future where they remain civically engaged. And -hmm. the same thing, like having conversations about Black Lives Matter and about police brutality um, Mm -hmm. and about state-sanctioned violence and what that looks like. Hopefully, for me, it's about planting seeds in them for the future so that they can create the change that so many of us are protesting and marching for right now. Since your school was such specialized school and it has particular curriculum and focus, how was that adjustment to online learning? It was a lot of teachers trying to figure it out on their own. I myself went to my school building and created packets and like began dropping off packets at my students' houses on a weekly basis. Um, And then eventually our district opened up meal sites so families could go and get breakfast and lunch and at those sites they were giving out enrichment packets there were four sites in the city that were doing that and so some families still struggled you know with being able to access those meal sites I was still dropping off supplies and dropping off things to families we ended up going to virtual learning and so that was March 13th was When we closed, I want to say sometime in April is when the virtual learning rollout began. And that was a bumpy process as well. There was a survey that was extremely confusing and parents didn't know if it was a survey for them inquiring if they needed technology, if they needed a Chromebook. And so a lot of parents didn't complete it because they thought it was just like this optional thing. Mm -hmm. And this was a survey for the students to know how they would proceed with remote learning. Correct. Like the survey was essentially asking them, you know, how many devices do they have in their home? Do they have access to internet or Wi-Fi? You know, like who is their service provider? Like those different kinds of questions. But the way that the survey was presented was it felt like an optional survey, not so much like if you don't. Like I don't think parents realize that if they did not complete that survey, that they weren't going to get a Chromebook. On the other side of that, for the parents, this was the first time for a lot of them having access to Google, having to access Google Classroom and access these virtual lessons. And a lot of parents struggled with that side of it as well. Since the, the children are so young, these were probably also pretty young families. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a lot of parents that are in their 20s and I also have a lot of parents that have other children as well. You know, families that have multiple children in elementary school and a parent having to essentially navigate all of this technology, all of these lessons and typically in the same window. Right. Because most teachers all work the same hours, you know, we're all available the same amount of time. And so a lot of parents were really struggling. And then they also had the secondary burden of just their livelihoods, (laughs) you know, working, trying to figure out what work looks like now and paying rent or mortgage and just living. 
100%. Just like a lot of my parents are young, a lot of my parents are essential workers also. I have one parent in particular in my right now who literally would call me every day like, Mrs. Harris, when are you all going back to school? Because I have to go, like I have to work. Mm-hmm. Understanding that part of it really makes the decision so difficult as an educator, right? Like we right. want to be in person with our students. We understand the burdens that our parents face, but we also want to be healthy and safe at the same time. It just makes this time for all of us so difficult. Do you think that your school is in a place where it can safely reopen in the fall? No, I do not think that. There were issues, and I like to continue to point this out, COVID-19 didn't do anything but expose a lot of the inequities and disparities that existed already in public education, in particular in public education in schools in divested communities. How are your students coping with this? The pandemic alone would be just emotionally exhausting, but also with the fact that this is a time for racial justice. Yeah, my students were admittedly struggling with the whole virtual learning. Like that um, was something that they just could not wrap their heads around. And we have a culture in our classroom where it is really a community. We share that space with each other on such a regular basis. And we've also been together for two years um, because I looped with them. So they just were like, Miss Harris, when are we going to come back to school? Like, I want to see you. I want to be with my friends and my classmates. Couple that with everything else that's going on. But then also realizing that the community that they live in is already a community that suffered, that has trauma. I mean, they're struggling even at six and seven years old. They are having a difficult time. And I think that that's why it's going to be so important when we return to school to really focus on having these conversations, like I mentioned earlier. What were their questions like? Not so much in regards to the pandemic, but did they have any questions regarding the social justice aspect of this time? They would ask me questions like, Mrs. Harris, did the people march by your house? Mrs. Harris, did you, you know, did you hear those fireworks? There was actually some unrest that had happened early on in the protest. And so some buildings on MLK were actually vandalized and looted. And there were a couple of things that were set on fire. They asked me questions about stuff like that. And, you know, they would see stuff on the news and they would ask me, like, did I hear about that man who had the knee on his neck? They are aware of what's going on. Like they are aware of their surroundings even so young. And I mean, I, that's why I often tell people we have to be very cognizant of the, the conversations and the, the way that we have conversations around these young minds, right? Because they are number one, soaking up everything that we say and internalizing everything that we say. And they have questions about it and they want to talk about it. And so we just have to be really cognizant of our dialogue when we're engaging young folks in conversations like this. On a more personal level, how have you been dealing with the social justice movement? Have you been involved in any of the protests and uh, has it affected you at all or impacted you? Oh, definitely. So, I mean, first and foremost, like in terms of transitioning from teaching into the pandemic, 
I right away began to do some mutual aid work in my community. And then like once everything started to happen with um, George Floyd and Amal Arbery and Breonna Taylor, I engaged in some local protests here. And then I started to create my own form of activism, I guess, for young folks. We do this thing called We Chalk Your Walk, where we go to the homes of local elected officials here in Milwaukee who have the ability to create the policy change that we want to see, like defunding the police. And we chalk their sidewalks with messages of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as some local folks who have lost their lives here to police state-sanctioned violence. And then we try to engage the local electeds in dialogue if they will come out. Some have and some have not. We have a list of demands that we we provide to them to respond to. And uh, we engage folks in a letter writing campaign after that to write that local elected official around our demands and get them to act on our demands. And if they don't respond, we go back to their homes and we continue to hold them accountable and we engage the young folks in dialogue around voting and what it looks like to hold local elected officials accountable. It's open to the community. So anybody in the community is welcome to come. Mm, okay. And so we've had first graders and we've had two-year-olds. So wow. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite part about being a teacher? My favorite part about being a teacher is really watching them grow and change and like start to learn about themselves and like discover who they are, how they feel like that is the best part for me, not how much academic success they achieve, but how much social and emotional and like personal success they achieve. More than anything, life outcomes are more important than academic outcomes. My goal as a teacher is to ensure that I am educating the global citizens. And so just being able to see them grow into that and, like you said, engage in these conversations that are so above them at times. It right. just, it's all inspiring to just see see young people grow and develop into themselves. It's tough for us as adults. <laughs> and I think America's going through like this reawakening. So I don't have children and I can't ponder what it's like for their little brains to try to make sense of all that's happening. Well, I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit here. You can, you sure can. (laughs) I've been their teacher for two years. I had them in K-5 and I moved with them to first grade. And this has always been a part of the conversations that I have with them. We talk about Asada Shakur and Ella Baker and Claudette Colvin. And I particularly bring in stories for them where there are young people engaged in activism and young people like I don't know if a lot of people know the story about the seven little girls that went to jail during the civil rights movement for protesting, but I brought it that story into my classroom and read it to my scholars. So even at six or seven years old, we had children participating in the civil rights movement, actively engaged in trying to create change. And so I, I let them know at five years old, it was possible for them to do that. And so we're going to continue to have these conversations and they know that they can have those conversations with me because we've always had those conversations. Hold on one second. 
there were children arrested during the civil rights movement yes yep i that is groundbreaking news to me i had no idea that's insane there were seven little girls that were arrested and Dr. King actually mentions them in his, I have a dream speech. And so this is how we talk. This is how we build culture in our school too. Right? Like, so we're not just talking about Dr. King and I have a dream during civil rights. It goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. We're talking about all of the folks that were engaged in the movement during that time, the folks that supported Dr. King, the folks that you may not read about in the news. That's all built into our curriculum. One would have to assume that students who are engaged in their culture and their culture is centered in their historical experiences are told truthfully are going to be a little bit better or a little bit more willing to engage in conversations around social justice. What are some resources that you could offer to some parents with young kids and they want to bring their kids up to speed? So the first place I always send folks is to the uh, Black Lives Matter at School website. It is blacklivesmatteratschool.com. There are tons of resources. They go from early childhood all the way up to secondary education. They range in topics from Black Lives Matter to Reconstruction. There's there's grade-specific content. There is subject-specific content. So I always encourage people in the curriculum, the lesson plans, the resources are always available throughout the whole entire year. So you can access them whenever you want. Teaching Tolerance, their website is always updated with stories about virtual learning and equity in virtual learning spaces and social and emotional learning. There's tons of lessons and resources. EduColor is also another good space for parents to go. They have tons of resources around starting to have conversations about race and racism. Ibram X. Kendi just wrote a really good book called The Anti-Racist Baby Mm. um, for little, little ones to begin to, and it's a board book too, and it's super cute. So for little, little ones to begin the conversations about race. Angela, I am blown away. Is there anything that you would want to tell our listeners or like leave them with any words of wisdom? (laughs) I always leave people with a charge, right? Or a call to action. Yes, that's what I'm Um, looking for. Yes. (laughs) Yep, yep. So my call to action for you is to get engaged at your school, Mm. um, get engaged at your school board meetings, get engaged at the school level, talk to your administrators. If you feel like something isn't working with virtual learning, please advocate for your students. I tell parents all the time that they are their students' biggest advocate. And if you don't know who your school board members are, you, you need to find out and get familiar because those are the folks who make the decisions that directly impact our students. And they answer to you. You know, you are their constituent. And if you haven't begun to engage in conversations about race and beginning to do work, the work of being anti-racist, I would encourage you to do that as well because times are changing and folks are ready to create a society and educational spaces where students are thriving and are free from harm. And that work starts with us. Wow. Angela Harris, you are amazing and You are incredible. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Chaylin. I appreciate it. You have a good one. Thanks for coming on The Delve. Thanks for listening in. That's The Delve. I'll see you next week with part two.